Welcome to the St. Barnabas Anglican Church Podcast. We share sermons, teachings, and messages from St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Fort Worth, Texas. I'm Father Andrew, the senior pastor at the church, and I'm glad you're listening today. You're always invited to worship in person on Sunday mornings at 8 and 10 a.m. and on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. You can also visit us online at stbarnabas.us. That's S-T-B-A-R-N-A-B-A-S dot U-S. And now, enjoy the podcast. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Several years ago, when we finally moved out to Keller from Bedford, where we had been living, we invited a um, family friend who is a landscaper out to evaluate our flower bed, uh, to help get it in order, and to add a little bit of vegetation in the backyard. And as we were discussing uh, our I was asking him, rather, uh, what would work well given the lighting and the direction and all these kinds of things. He glanced over and he looked at our rose bushes and he said, do you want me to replace those too? I was a bit puzzled. I mean, they weren't completely looking normal uh, at the time, Um, but I thought, well, you know, that was just a little bit of an odd growth. And I thought maybe with a little tender love and care, a little extra fertilizer and some careful pruning, we could take care of it. And he said, no, sadly, actually, um, your plants are diseased and I have to dig them out. And I said, well, is there anything we can do uh, to treat the plants? And he said, unfortunately not. I said, the disease is called rosette disease. And as I looked it up, um, it's transferred uh, from rosebush to rosebush by tiny little mites that kind of, once one plant gets infected, um, the wind blows them as they will, and they feed on a rosebush, and they actually transfer this virus into the vascular system of the plant. By the time you ever see it, it's mutating a bit, and then slowly but surely the whole plant um, is infected. And the only treatment is truly to dig them out, and replant your bushes. So needless to say, after the explanation, I said, well, I guess we have no choice. So go right ahead and uh, dig them out and replace them. And we enjoyed uh, healthy rose bushes for years since. As I reflected on that uh, this week in light of our reading from Romans, uh, much in the same way, we're reminded in a very tough passage from Paul and a very thick passage theologically from Paul, um, that uh, this similarly disease of sin has permeated all of creation, including us. Um, And often its effects uh, go unseen until they manifest in any number of ways. Uh, And so this morning we're going to tackle, you know, those two big topics of the problem of evil and sin in the world um, as Paul leaves them before us in Romans chapter 1. But as you locate it, um, I was reminded as well, kind of thinking through all of these things, um, of a a lesson from a professor in seminary um, as we were unpacking the depths of some of these topics together. Uh, He said, you know, if you don't believe in the disease of sin, uh, you're welcome he said to our class, uh, any of you to come and spend the afternoon with my three boys. 
Um, he said, I can assure you um, that I have not taught them how to create mischief, nor how to blame one another for their own faults, nor how to get out of, in any way they can, with great cunning, um, anything that they have done. And yet, somehow, they've discovered how to do this. Um, and so, with that in mind, let's turn our attention to Romans 1. Um, we're going to bounce around, if you're in your Bibles, a bit. We're actually going to begin um, in verse uh, 18, uh, and then we'll kind of work our way back, as you will. As we get into this text, we note that Paul talks about this disease, sin itself, that comes through human rebellion, namely through suppressing the truth that's all around us, visible in this realm in which we live, of the fingerprints of God found throughout all of creation. This general revelation of God um, manifest in creation itself leaves us without excuse, as Paul writes it, because we can perceive God's power and nature just by looking out on all that he has made. The rebellion that affects everything, uh, not just us, uh, affects creation itself, uh, hence my blighted rose bushes, I suppose. Um, and Paul turns his attention to that in Romans 8, noting, of course, that all creation, not just us, groans and waits for its ultimate redemption. Now, as we know, this um, rebellion of God comes as we push back on our created purpose, namely to know, to worship, and to serve God um, and all that uh, he created under his reign and rule. And this disease of the heart, if we can call it that, sin itself, desires to be God rather uh, than allowing God to be who he is. So Paul expounds in, in verse 21 that this rebellion comes when we fail to honor God and to acknowledge him um, and lean into him and his power over both us and all that he's made. So not unlike my rosebush, this rebellion is not often seen until the disease has taken hold, the disease of sin in our hearts. And so consequently, the behaviors, the evil, even the disordering of things we're dealing with this week are all an effect of the disorderment of creation itself. Everything is put out of joint, if you will, as a result. It enters the world through distorted thinking and a darkened heart is what Paul um, calls it, actually, in verse 21. Oops, sorry, should advance the slide there. So you've got it before you. And so our colic this morning that collects this theme, as you heard when we gathered, um, reminds us of this, pulling from St. Augustine, saying that um, as a result, this distorted thinking and the darkened heart, uh, this disease of sin, produces restlessness in us. Namely, that we are restless as we search for purpose and meaning, often pining away in all sorts of different things, in cunning ways, uh, rather than being at rest in who we are, namely uh, in our relationship to God. And such attempts in our restlessness get quite elaborate. I was reminded of this quite literally as I sat down to work on a sermon this week, um, only to be alerted that um, our Amazon account, an Amazon card, had been hacked. Um, you've been there, of course. Um, and as I was going through all the normal protocols, as you do with the bank and with all the you know, vendors trying to dispute charges and all of these things, um, I thought, this is bizarre. And as I was researching it, um, I realized that someone with great cunning had archived purchases so that I couldn't even see them until they'd kind of popped up. And as I 
untangled this web after a couple hours and then sought back down underneath God's text and was thinking about it once more, I thought, my goodness, therein is perhaps proof evidence of the fact that we can get quite cunning when it comes to this disordering of our minds and hearts towards this end. And so Paul rightly reminds us um, that while we may try to mask it, claiming to be wise, we truly are foolish apart from what uh, we are, namely in relationship to God. And so while the surface uh, for a time might look okay, um, the disease itself, as we know, has permeated all of the human heart. And so um, in a great quote that I found by a, a wonderful theologian this week in my own study put this quite simply, evil's what you get when the mind is twisted out of shape and the body goes along for the ride. It's a wonderful reminder, is it not? Uh, it begins in our hearts and our desires, and then our body and subsequently our affections are just kind of along for the ride at that moment. And try as we may, um, that is the case. Again, as I shared uh, another wonderful quote towards that end um, that came from another towering figure in mind in our time, um, notes that what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I shared that on Ash Wednesday, if you were here, from Thomas Cramner. Namely, that what we desire drives our actions, and then we're left trying to justify those ends. And so, as you heard subsequently, in how all this winds up at the end of this passage, um, in fact, the most pitiful end towards that in verse 22 is that with everything out of joint, No longer do we not only recognize things out of joint, but we even justify the things that are out of joint, both within us and our own affections and desires, and even in the world in which we live as we look out upon it, as the disease of sin has taken great depth and root. Now, Paul gives us a list that can certainly... um, be in great depth and detail in verses 23 to 31. There's, I mean, he doesn't leave a whole lot out uh, for the human heart in a list of the things that are disordered in the world around us and even in our own hearts. He pulls no punches and he goes into them with great depth and detail. But you'll notice that with each section, he repeats the same phrase. And that is this. You'll notice three times in that chunk, he says, if I can get this to work, um, therefore God gave them up. Therefore, God gave them up. And then he lists whatever it may be that God gave them up to. With that repetition, um, he notes that everything therein, um, God gives them over to those things. And we'll return to that in just a moment. But if you were to read through this whole list, um, we could all sum up everything within that list in one word. They are all idols. Every last one of those things mentioned in those verses are idols. Now, I say that because the disease of sin, or at least um, kind of the manifestation of it, is an idolatry. And what does that mean? Um, a lot of times when we hear that word idol, we think Old Testament, we think graven images, or we might think that people have things that are idols, a home, uh, a car, a, a trophy, or whatever it might be. And while that may be true, um, Paul's point as he lists through this, truly is material or immaterial regardless. An idol is anything that becomes the focus of our thoughts and our heart's desires over against God. And so, therefore, it's clear 
um, in verse 25, as he says, that um, anything towards that end can be an idol. And he lists those, whatever it may be, a desire for power uh, or control, our um, sexual desires and their appetites, even covetousness and malice, a desire for more things. He even throws in gossip that wanting to be in the know can be an idol, wanting to have knowledge as God does towards that end. Anything can become an idol. And subsequently, all individual sin is a consequence, as he kind of points back to in verse 21, a failure to honor and to worship God. But it begs the question, or at least it makes us wonder, why does God give us over to these things? Why is that allowed? Simply put, when God gives us responsibility, he means it. He truly means it. When he allows us to be made in his image and to make choices and decisions, both individually and corporately, God quite alarmingly allows us to explore those and even to do so to their ultimate end, if we so desire. He may warn us, as he does. He may give scripture to commend, to convict us, uh, even calling us back, as he does, in the person of Jesus, as we hear in the gospel, in the Samaritan woman. But if we choose to persist in our idolatry, we can do that. And he allows us to do that, because in giving us responsibility, he actually means we have responsibility. And so, interestingly, the consequence or the results is that if we persist in our idolatry, whatever that may be, um, the very nature of ours, our very humanness, actually begins to dissolve bit by bit by bit. As our minds are twisted out of God's design, as our hearts and minds are out of joint, we see that, of course, daily around us. When we don't live as we're intended and created, namely in harmony with God, we're more fully um, and truly less human than God intended. Um, in fact, uh, our image bearerness, if we could use that, uh, becomes so fragmented um, that we cease to be as God intended, as we worship and serve something else. And it kind of diminishes quite literally who we are. Now, if we think about that on a corporate level, you can think of how this happens. Let's use a big example. Um, when we look throughout history and world wars, usually things start off towards the end of we must remedy that problem or whatever that evil is. But um, those who've served, and, and certainly as we look back in the stories of history, more often than not, we get sidetracked towards those end. Some idol of maybe we could get this land or power or this resource or this thing uh, kind of crops up. And, and there's always the temptation to get off track. And often we see that play out on a global level. But even in our own hearts, we see that. As we read through this list, I don't think there's anyone, myself included, whose conscience isn't pricked by something therein. And it reminds us that the war of our mind and our heart, if given into, likewise compromises and distorts who we are. But here's the good news. The good news is that unlike my roses, this disease has a cure. That cure, that antidote, is the person of Jesus. And um, as we turn to the beginning of this passage, if we back into it, if you look back to verse 16, we discover two of the most theologically dense uh, passages of Scripture in verses 16 and 17. I won't do them justice because I know they could be an entire sermon series. In fact, this is the, kind of the thesis of all of the book of Romans in these two chock-full verses that Paul lays out. But as he does so, he begins by saying um, he's not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because um, 
he's actually facing the idolatry of the world in which he lives. Remember, he lives in the Roman Empire. The Roman emperor claims to be not only uh, sovereign over everything the known world sees, but also by divine right. And so he's not ashamed of the gospel that stands contrary to the gospel of the age, that more or less is claiming reign and rule over all things. And he says this true gospel in Jesus Christ um, is one that um, has ultimate power and salvation to all who believes. And so he's not ashamed of that. And he says, he continues, not just for the Jew, but even the Greeks. Um, There's some depth and richness, almost in kind of turn of phrases that Paul uses here. The reason he says not uh, even to the Greeks in writing that while he's writing to the Romans is that if you know your world history, the Greeks think that everyone other than them is barbaric. Their language is barbarian. Their cultures are barbarian. The Greeks had held their own culture and language as an idol unto itself, unto which no one else could attain. And so perhaps almost in a turn of humor, uh, Paul kind of says, yes, indeed, this gospel has power to the Jews, but also even those Greeks who think they're above everybody else, even though he's writing the Romans. And therefore, this power has gospel power to transform all of creation to anyone who would receive it. So there's some depth and detail to be mined here, of which I know I'm not doing justice. But then he continues by saying this righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. Namely, that God desires and longs to put the world to rights, to put the world right. And Paul says, as scripture reminds us, and he echoes Habakkuk in that quote, that the righteous shall live by faith and obedience therein. But this salvation that Paul is speaking of, this power of the gospel, is not something far off um, for eternity, while it will be attained as such, but it is the remedy to sin itself. And so simply, if if the disease uh, of sin and its effects are idolatry, the remedy remedy of sin, excuse me, tongue-tied this morning, um, is the gospel itself. Now, the gospel itself, of course, is a loaded phrase. It doesn't just mean uh, the words and teachings of Jesus. It doesn't just mean the New Testament. It means the totality of the revelation of God in the pages of Scripture. Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all that. And the Holy Spirit, um, as Jesus rightfully ascends to his place in glory, um, continues to proceed and reveal all truth in the latter half of Scripture as well. But Paul's making a huge point here, namely that Scripture, the gospel, as he refers to it, this good news brings wholeness and it perseveres or sustains us toward eternal life. You see, Paul doesn't see the gospel as something that just is called to bring people to faith, to just convert people into the Christian faith, but the thing that persists in the life of the faithful to the salvation of their souls. Put differently, the gospel is not just to win converts, but is the whole of the Christian message and claim for every single Christian, no matter how long you've walked with Jesus or how new you do or have. So what are we to make of this? What are we to um, draw towards these ends? I believe um, there's not any room for any of us in our own hearts to look through this chunk and not be convicted in some way. So the first step 
To embrace the gospel is to acknowledge our idolatry, whatever it may be, and to ask for God's forgiveness. That's what this season of Lent is all about. That's why this text, in all of its depth and detail, is pulled before us nearing the midway point. So that when we get to that point in a moment where we confess our sins, in the pregnant pause therein, we may call forth those idols of our hearts and ask for God's forgiveness towards that end. But then once forgiven, that we steep ourselves more fully in the gospel life, that we recognize that it's not just a getting right with God and moving on with it, but it's a persevering in that from faith uh, and to faith toward that end that we persevere towards the end, that we do so certainly through our individual study of scripture, but also corporately in the life that we lead as a church. Perhaps in these uh, trying times um, that we're in today, um, may even afford us in a greater opportunity toward that end to reach out to somebody that you normally might see around you, to check on them, um, to even, you know, converse with them on passages of Scripture from week to week, even the ones we hear today, and to dialogue about that. That is the journey to which we hold ourselves to account, so that in diligent prayer and study, we uphold and spur one another on towards that end. So um, this week I was also, it was kind of a purgative week this week. Uh, in addition to dealing with our, our um, kind of uh, identity theft, we also, Michelle and I, had to go to the DPS. It was our, you know, every other renewal where you have to go in per person to renew your driver's license. And so um, in the great time that I had uh, to uh, think about all sorts of things, um, I discovered, of course, something that um, I'm sure many of you had discovered, but as a young parent, we only catch things in the immediacy. Um, there was notice, of course, of, uh, of the updates they're making to Texas driver's licenses with this real ID that they're doing. Um, you know, it's uh, something, I guess, that will have a star so that, as Father Greg can tell us, I guess airline travel and all sorts of things uh, are supposed to follow up on this end. Uh, ironically, to help with identity theft, uh, as they have more of your um, identity on file and hopefully can combat things in the future. But as I was thinking about this um, and kind of reflecting on it, I thought, you know, how interesting. Um, scripture commends us where our real identity is, namely that you and I are children of God. That is our real identity. But the list of things that Paul has given here that many wrestle with in this life, many of the challenges, um, the, the kind of twisting of our hearts and minds lie to us to say that that is what we need to be who we are. That those things, if I'm not in the know, that um, I, I'll cease to kind of be one that's highly favored. Or that if I don't have substances that keep me the life of the party, then my identity might change. Or whatever the case may be, um, and our, our relationships, or wherever that may be, we buy into this lie. And the enemy lies upon our mind to say, that's your identity. If you give that up, um, who will you be? And God's truth and the truth of Scripture stands before us to say that's not who you are. Who you are is a beloved child of God. And as such, you need nothing more and you need nothing less. All the rest is subject to that. So in a sense, our real ID, if we would have one, would be to say that you are a child of God and you are loved. And you need nothing more to prove that or to be something else to receive that love. Anything or anyone else that tells you otherwise um, is falling short of who we are in Christ. So towards that end, as we persevere this week, 
And as we reflect on these things and uh, turn our attention to them, may God continue to give us grace to draw near to him as we recognize that indeed that is our real identity as beloved children of God. So may the Holy Spirit continue to convict, to convince, and to conform our will to his in these 40 days so that we may arise more fully to the new life in Jesus during Eastertide. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Barnabas Anglican Church podcast. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week, and we'll see you next time. This episode of the St. Barnabas Anglican Church podcast is copyright 2020, St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Fort Worth, Texas, all rights reserved.